Let's keep talking about money. We, if you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, we are taking the month of June to talk about money, not because God is short on cash, not because the church is even short on cash, but because the Bible talks over and over and over again about money and about possessions and about what is revealed about our hearts through the ways that we handle our money. The series that we're in the middle of is called Giving. It's a heart condition. Because it's not actually about the money. It's about the heart of the giver. We give not for God's benefit as though He's the recipient up there hungry and in need. No, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It all belongs to Him. We don't give for God's benefit. We give for our benefit because giving shapes our hearts. It changes us. And this is how we've been exploring this conversation about what the Bible says about money and specifically about giving over these last few weeks. The first week we looked at it just by very quick recap. We looked at the heart condition of gratitude. The idea that says we give because God has given to us. And so our main idea that week, we looked at tithing and this, this idea of 10% being given to your local church as being something that was a precedent set in Abraham's day, uh, codified into law with Moses. Uh, Jesus fulfills the law, but affirms the idea of tithe, but just raises the bar and says, hey, 10%, that's just a starting point. Why don't you give it all? And we see Paul saying, do it cheerfully and proportionately. And this idea that tithing is one way that we give that both expresses, but it also cultivates. It shapes us. It grows us into people who have gratitude to God in our hearts. So the first heart condition, we say giving is a heart condition. The first heart condition is one of gratitude. That was week one. Week two, we took a look at priorities. And we saw that giving is actually one of the ways that we can align our hearts with what God is doing in the world and what God's priorities are. And whether it's our people, you know, we looked at taking care of our own family, including our parents. Or whether it's God's people and caring for one another as the people of God and His church. Or whether it's all people, especially the least of these and those are the most vulnerable in our society. We saw that God's priorities are actually to care for people. And so we give to care for people because He loves them. But after a couple weeks of looking at some of these sort of big ideas, I find myself saying, okay, intellectually I can assent to the idea that giving is a good idea. I can say I've seen a number of places in Scripture where it says I should be giving. It's just I'm still not giving. There, there's something in the way here of us actually putting our money where our mouth is. Why don't we give? It's not enough to know that the Bible says we should, because should is very seldom an appropriate motivator for any kind of positive action. Nobody likes being guilted into behavior. So we want to be inspired by the Scripture to say, I don't want to do it out of guilt. I want to do it because God is good. And I want it to be an overflow. And yet, sometimes it still doesn't translate into a generous lifestyle. Why don't we give? I think one reason we don't give is because we don't actually believe any of this stuff. I think there's, a, I don't know, there's something about, you can go to church your whole life and it's sort of just going through the motions. And you hear the good things and it's kind of churchy and you just love people and it's sort of abstract. Until you come to that place of having a personal relationship with Jesus, this stuff is just 
Nah. Mere tradition, and it's not enough to help us give. There's something about an actual relationship with Jesus, believing in what He's done, that allows overflow to manifest itself in terms of giving. So I think one of the reasons is actually we don't actually believe this stuff. We've allowed our faith to degenerate into mere tradition. I think a bigger reason, though, is probably just selfishness. Like, I know what God's priorities are. It's just mine are more important. I like stuff. And if I give more, that means I get less. And I'd really like more stuff. I'd really like to be using my financial resources to further my agenda, not God's. Sometimes they overlap. And when it's convenient, sure, I'll give a little bit here and there. But in the, as a larger picture, my money. I've got things I want to do with it. And I think the root of that is just selfishness. But I think the third reason we don't give, and the reason we're going to be spending more of our time this morning talking about, is actually fear. Because what if God doesn't come through? If I give, and I give generously, and I give sacrificially, well, what happens later when my own needs aren't met because I've given What happens if God doesn't provide for my needs? Here I am giving all my money away and now I don't even have enough to get through my month. I'm actually terrified to give. During the bombing raids of World War II, thousands of children were orphaned in the UK, left to starve. The fortunate ones were rescued. They were placed in refugee camps where they received food and good care. But many of these children actually had difficulties, um, even just something as simple as going to sleep at night. They feared waking up to find themselves once again homeless and without food. They'd lost so much that they couldn't sleep at night. Nothing seemed to reassure them. Finally, somebody had this bright idea of giving each child a piece of bread to take to bed with them, just to sleep with. Holding that bread, the children could finally sleep in peace because all through the night that bread reminded them, today I had something to eat and tomorrow it's right here in my hands. Tomorrow I'll have something to eat too. And those kids were able to sleep. And I think that's a powerful image of how fear can affect the freedom with which we live. How often do we approach our finances in a way that isn't that dissimilar to the bread. Like, we don't actually sleep with our money. But the idea of saying, I need something that's going to give me security. I need something that's going to give me confidence. So I'm just going to hold on to my money as I sleep because I know that I'll be able to get through tomorrow if I just hold on to my money. I think beneath the fear of giving is actually the issue of trust. And it's one thing for children in wartime and in orphanages who have a legitimate reason to say, I don't know if I will get fed tomorrow. But it's another thing entirely when we have been adopted into God's own family and He's the master baker. He owns all the bread and invites us Not to sleep with a scarcity mindset clutching to something that might give us hope for one day. He invites us into the freedom of life 
knowing there is bread abundant. And we don't need to go to sleep in fear anymore. That's a temporary solution. The permanent, the permanent, the, the, the large-scale answer to the issue of fear is trust. It's catching a glimpse of a God who says He will provide for our needs and believing Him. This morning as we talk about giving, we're talking about the heart condition of trust. And I am convinced that giving is an act of trust in God's provision and love. That until you believe that God loves you and wants to care for you, you won't give. And until you throw your life in His hands and trust that He's got you, you can't give. And you certainly can't give with a cheerful heart. You can't give with joy and freedom. Now this conviction comes from the Bible. Go figure. It's what we're here to look at this morning. I am going to propose a journey through the Scriptures this morning where we are going to be taken through from a couple of different propositions to build this case of trust. I want to take us on this journey. So at the end of the journey, we're left in the place of saying, maybe. I'll consider this a win if when we're done here, we're willing to say, maybe I'll give it a try. Maybe I can trust God in this way. For example, the first step of the journey, the Bible says we should trust God. That's actually kind of the starting place of the entire conversation. Because over and over again in the Scriptures, God promises to meet our needs because He loves us. We need to be so convinced of this that it sets us free. For example, Matthew chapter 6 is a famous passage, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, verses 25 through 33. And we find these words. Jesus is speaking to them saying, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food? The body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, Jesus continues. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns or hoard their money in 401Ks. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Jesus continues, And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans, those who don't yet know God, they run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. This is God's promise for us. This is not a promise of where we can be passive, right? It's not sit back, put your feet up, get the Doritos, watch the game, and God will provide. But rather, to seek 
the kingdom purposes of God in this world and to seek His righteousness that it might become manifest in us as He shapes our character. And as we pursue God and His kingdom and His righteousness, God's just waiting to provide for all of our needs. This is where the promise begins. You have to believe that first. You have to believe in God's character and His nature. You have to believe that God is good and He wants good things for you. And you have to believe that Jesus is actually telling us the truth. That He wants to care for us. Proverbs says it slightly differently. It says in Proverbs chapter 3, a familiar verse as well to many of us, in verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord, we are admonished. With all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all ways acknowledge Him. And He'll make your paths straight. He's got you. When we trust in the Lord with all our heart, when we're not leaning on our own wisdom, our own understanding, when we, in all of our ways, put Him first, He says, I'll take care of the rest. I will make your paths straight. Important clarification here. He said, I will make your paths straight, not necessarily easy. It might be a straight line. It's not without ups and downs and hills and boulders to climb over. And even when he says, I want to provide for you, we have to recognize he's going to provide what we need, but not necessarily what we want. He may provide for us at a standard of living that is lower than if we were in charge. He may provide for us in unexpected ways that require us to be humbled. Maybe even to accept help from one another. But the point here is that over these are just two texts that come to mind when we're trying to establish the proposition, why should we even do this giving thing? Can we even trust God? The Bible over and over again says, yes, you should trust God. He's trustworthy. And He wants to provide for our needs. He promises to meet our needs because He loves us. This is where the journey begins. The journey takes a bit of a hitch, a bit of a left turn, because the next realization is even though the Bible says we should, we don't. Because we're human. Because we're scared. Because we don't believe. We don't trust God. And I would argue that it is revealed. This truth is revealed in the way that we handle our money. If you're familiar with the concept of an indicator species, a bit of a left turn here as well. Um, we're, for a while, we're just going to talk about frogs, because frogs are awesome, and frogs are what are considered an indicator species in a wetlands ecosystem, which means if you have lots of frogs around, you know the ecosystem is healthy, and if the frogs are missing, conspicuously absent, there's something wrong. Frogs are fascinating because, you know, they, they, they build, their, their lives span two different environments, right? They start as tadpoles with the little gills, and they're underwater, and then as they grow, they, become in, they develop into land animals as well. So they're exposed to both aspects of the environment. They conduct gas exchange through their skin, which means they're ultra susceptible to whatever's in the water around them for any pollutants or toxins. They, they're actually very intolerant 
of toxicity, and they don't have the mechanisms for metabolizing toxins. And if their food supply is also contaminated, there's this biomagnification of toxins that actually sees as they eat contaminated things, those toxins build up in their systems to the point that they cannot get rid of those toxins, and they're dramatically affected. And so if you picture yourself on the edge of a wetland, if you've ever been there on the edge of, you know, it's sort of a muddy bog and you've got the cattails coming out, maybe the sun is just starting to go down. It's a beautiful evening and you're listening and you can hear the sort of chirping sound that frogs make. You're thinking, this is spectacular. And you're seeing signs of a healthy ecosystem. And if you're in that same place and you're seeing this beautiful wetland and all the cattails are there and it's dead quiet because there's no chirping of frogs, no matter how beautiful the ecosystem looks, it's dying. And you have a glimpse of this indicator species idea that says, no matter how something looks on the surface, you can see a sign that it's actually dying from the inside. And I would propose to you that God has given us an indicator species in our giving. The idea that the way we approach giving indicates a much larger truth. Lest we get so focused on the dollars and cents and the percentages and how much of proportional income and cheerfully give, there's actually something beneath it all. And what's beneath it all is actually our relationship with God and our ability to trust Him and to be in a trusting relationship with our God. And everything might look good on the surface. We come to church, we're generally moral people, we're nice to one another, we smile and wish each other a good day. But if you don't see giving and generosity as part of the people of God, then there's something wrong with the ecosystem. There's something wrong with the root level relationship with God. Giving is an indication of a real relationship with a God that we trust. And so when we don't trust God, that very quickly shows up in our giving. Or in our lack thereof. But what I think is even more fascinating is not just that the Bible promises that God wants to provide for our needs and we should give, and not just that we don't give and the frogs have gone quiet, What I'm fascinated with is how God responds when we don't give. How does God respond when His people lack that generosity of spirit, that acknowledgement of gratitude, that alignment with God's own priorities? How does God respond when His people don't give? He invites us to come home again. He acknowledges that it's more than just about the giving. There's a relationship that's broken. And he says, come home, return to me, says the Lord. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't yell at us. He doesn't guilt us. He doesn't shame us. He just knows what's best for us. And says, I want you to experience the fullness of life that you were created for. And part of that is releasing the hold that money has over you. So return to me, God says. The language of returning to me comes out of the book of Malachi of all places, that little tiny minor prophet, the last book of the Old Testament. And uh, 
the prophet is writing on God's behalf, saying, ever since the time of your ancestors, this is Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Over and over and over again. This is the story of the people of God and of us. Return to me. And I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. See, there's, God is calling them out, saying the relationship that we have, it's broken. And it's not me, it's you. And he says, the, the entire book of Malachi is these almost like a call and response god brings an objection an accusation an indictment against his people and they say what how did we do that wrong and god says here's how you did it wrong and it says return to me now there's a lot of other things on the table it's not just about money he goes in in chapter one he's talking about their pathetic worship their hypocrisy in their worship in chapter 2, he's talking about treachery versus one another. There's issues of divorcing wives for no reason. It's, there's intermarriage with pagan idolaters, not out of some sort of xenophobic policy, but out of a, a desire to see God's people marrying people who love the Lord. There's, in chapter 2, verse 11, there's a toleration of sorcery and witchcraft among the people of God. And there's even the exploitation of the defenseless in chapter 3, verse 5. So the book of Malachi is this broad-scale indictment against the people of God saying, this relationship we're supposed to have, it is way off base. And included in that list of crazy relationship-breaking things is the way they handle their money. How are we to return to you? The people in Malachi's day ask. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, says the Lord. But you ask, how exactly are we robbing you, God? And this is how the Lord replies. In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. What the people of God in that, they were not giving. And that's right up there with pathetic worship and treachery with one another and sorcery and, and relationship baggage and exploitation of the defenseless. God doesn't just focus on the money. He says there's this whole vast menu of ways that you're messing up this relationship we have. But He certainly doesn't exclude money either. He goes there and says, you're supposed to be giving out of gratitude. You're supposed to be giving because it's a priority of my heart and I want it to be a priority of yours. And the language that God uses here is, you're robbing me. Robbing God of our giving. But I think what's actually happening underneath here is, is the relationship level. It's evidence. It's frogs in a, in a wetland robbing god of our trust that's the relationship god wants with us he wants us to trust him so ultimately we're just robbing ourselves when we don't give we're missing out on what it's like to live in a trusting relationship with god we're taking our money and putting it by our pillow and falling asleep confident that we've got money instead of allowing ourselves to fall asleep trusting in the living God to take care of all of our needs. And then, 
And then God steps up the game. And in Malachi, we're going to continue Malachi, he steps up the game and God triple dog dares the people of the Old Testament to give. The very next line, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Bring it. I dare you, God says. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not be room enough to store it. Do you see how God wants to bless? You see the heart of God on display here. He wants us to give. And He dares us to give. And says, and if you do, I will bless you. This is the invitation to return to God, specifically in this area of giving. And He doesn't condemn us for not having given. He doesn't scold us for not having given. He doesn't shame us. He simply invites us back into right relationship with Him. And one aspect of that right relationship is a healthy approach to our money and our willingness to give. Which leads us to sort of the landing place in this journey through the Scriptures, back to the New Testament and that cheerful giver passage that we all hate. But now suddenly we're able to give cheerfully because we trust God completely. That's actually where the cheerful part of cheerful giving comes from. We're not trying to like conjure up within ourselves like, I will do this and I'll do it cheerfully. But rather, the cheerful disposition doesn't come because we give. It comes because we trust. And if our lives are His, then giving becomes a delight. 2 Corinthians is where that cheerful giver stuff comes from. And we looked at this text a couple weeks ago. Each of you should give what you've decided in your own heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not because someone's wagging their finger or shaming you, but rather God loves a cheerful giver. That's the part of the text that we're familiar with. And we stop there and say, so you should all give. And we violate the entire spirit of the text. If you keep reading, we get the context. And it's beautiful. Because if you give, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now, some, a shift just happened here. I don't know if you caught it our eyes just left ourselves and went outward. God will bless you abundantly. Okay, good. All my needs are met. So that God will bless us and provide for us. So that in all things, at all times, having all we need, we will abound in every good work. This is supposed to go outwards. This isn't just about taking care of me. This is about taking care of us. This is about taking care of others. Later in the text, by verse 10, he says it this way. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. He will provide for your physical needs and enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. He will shape your character through the act of giving and you will be enriched in every way. This sounds good. So that you can be generous on every occasion. 
You see why God gives to us too? This is like a weird version of Shark Tank where our pitch is, so I've got this idea, I want to give a bunch of money away. And the panel goes, that's a terrible business plan. But God's over here saying, I like it. I'm going to fund that. Because He wants us to be enriched in every way so that through us, He can be generous to others. I think that's fascinating. It's as though God is saying, look around you for ways that you can give. And as you find them, I'll fund them. Blessed to be a blessing. Goes all the way back to the promise God gave Abraham. That's our lifestyle, our calling, our delight. Not that we're sacrificing our stuff for someone else. No, we're just conduits through which God pours blessing. And ultimately, this text ends saying our generosity results in people giving thanks to God. And it's all about Him and His glory now and forever. We can give cheerfully because we trust our God completely. Because He's at work in the world demonstrating His love. And cheerful giving comes out of trust in this God. That He will not just meet our needs. It's not like here my needs are met. Oh no, I've given stuff away. Now I'm going to need something. It's not like God tops us up and gets us back to zero. No, God's going to top us up and then say, and now I'm going to give you even more so you can keep giving more away. Giving is an act of trust in God's provision that He's going to take care of our needs and in His love because we get to channel His resources to a hurting world, to people who are in need. And our giving is a way that someone can catch a glimpse of God's love for them. Implications. Let's land this plane. Number one, tithe faithfully because you can trust God will provide for your needs. So you're able to give with gratitude in your hearts without clutching, without grasping. The regular, planned, faithful, periodic giving of God's people puts God in the priority position in our lives. And we can't do it unless we trust He's going to take care of us. Give generously in the sense that we get to align our hearts with the Lord's priorities so we're constantly seeking to know Him better in His Word, constantly seeking to understand His character and nature so that when we see needs, our hearts go out to those needs in the same way that God's heart goes out to those needs. And maybe we're even in a position to meet those needs whether it's with our own people and our family, whether it's God's people, whether it's all people. Giving generously is the overflow of trust that God's got this. And so ultimately, we're simply saying, let's trust confidently. We build our lives upon a God who gives us everything that we need so that we can be generous with everything that He gives. So really, it it just comes down to the triple dog dare. Try it. God dares you to. Take one step on this journey of giving. Take a risk. Put yourself out there. 
and see if God doesn't throw open the floodgates of heaven and bring blessing, not so that you can have a $54 million private jet, but that so that as you see needs around you, God might fund the meeting of those needs through you. And you might find that your own heart learns to trust God in a whole new way. Because giving is an act of trust in God's provision and His care.